Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And y'all, real quick before we get started, if you haven't bought your tickets yet for the second annual Real Life, Real Crime Crew Bass, June the 19th at the world-famous Texas Club, get them now. You got to go to eventbrite.com. Type in Real Life Real Crime, and it'll bring up the second annual crew bash. The tickets are $40 a piece. Doors open at 7. I'm going to take the stage around 8 and do a live, never-before-heard podcast. Adult and raunchy, okay? And so we're going to have a great time with that. When I get done, we're going to do the drawing for LOPA, the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. And what that is, y'all, or drawing lottery, whatever you want to call it, it's on all our social media. Go click on it. Get your tickets now. The winner is going to receive a guided fishing trip, which is being donated by Captain Calvin Duvall, Duvall's Cajun Charters. And they get to bring a guest, and they'll get to fish with me. All, all day long. And uh, the night before the the trip, Real Life Real Crime will provide that, the winner and that guest with lodging, um, hopefully at the marina where we're going to launch from if they're not booked. But I'll, Real Life Real Crime will provide the room. Captain Calvin Duvall of Duvall's Cajun Charters is going to provide the experience and the boat and all the equipment, everything we need. And then... When you get done fishing and we're going to tear them up, you're going to have a ton of fish to bring home. Local Leaders of Podcasts and Jim Chapman, the host, is donating 
125 quart Yeti ice chest for you to bring your fresh fish home in. So that's over $600 just in itself, y'all. So those tickets are $15 a piece or $100 for a book of 10. It's well over $2,000 worth of not only monetary prizes, y'all, but the you know you get that once in a lifetime fishing trip. It's going to be amazing. I've done this trip with Captain Calvin Duvall on, on the worst day of the year, and and it was a blast. We filled up ice chests. So, you know, you go during the summertime or whenever the winter can determine whatever the date is. But if we go during the summertime or the fall, it's going to be fire. So, uh, and then it's after I do the podcast, we will do the drawing live on stage. You don't need to be present to win. And then whoever the one lucky winner is, will announce their name and then we'll give a check to the local representative for the proceeds from this raffle or lottery, whatever you want to call it, y'all. But it goes to LOPA. And it's huge. They're a nonprofit, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, and they save lives every day. All right. So let's get started on this episode. And it's kind of a continuation. It's the same bad guy from Cajun Killings, or whatever I named that episode last week. Uh, same bad guy, but different crimes. And, and then, y'all, you know I'm raw and I'm unscripted and all that good stuff, but this. I have to read some of this because it's so much. Just like last week, I had to read some of it because, you know, all the the errors and everything on his other murder case when he murdered the Fontenot boy in the barn in Gaydon, the barn being the bar, if you haven't heard the episode yet. And I will tell you, I started out last week telling you about that Easter Sunday when I was driving back to Lafayette. Now, I, I lived in Lafayette at the time on the outskirts of Lafayette. And um, I'm going to tell you my personal involvement with this because it's kind of crazy. So, but let me give you a little history on, on Bork. Scott Bork, I think he, he's like 55. Now he's five years older than me, I think. And uh, he's born from down there. He lived in Kaplan in a trailer. And he used to date a girl named Charlotte Perry, P-E-R-R-Y. And they were on again and off again, but they had been broken up and she had left home for that this entire year, 1990, since January. And on a prior occasion, he went and snatched her from her work. And her dad, she was able to call her dad, and her dad got her. This happened again on March 17th, 1990. And just let me read this to y'all, all right? So March 17, 1990, Kenneth Perry received a telephone call from his 28-year-old daughter, Charlotte. Miss Perry told... Her father, the defendant, had taken her from her place of employment, as he had done on a prior occasion. When he learned this, Mr. Perry drove to Scott Bork's trailer in Kaplan, Louisiana, to retrieve his daughter and some of her belongings. Charlotte Perry and the defendant had a prior relationship but had broken up a few months earlier. When he arrived, Mr. Perry saw his daughter outside the trailer and spoke to her briefly. The defendant, that's Scott Bork, y'all, approached and told the two Perrys he wanted them to accompany him to Holly Beach. Yeah, Holly Beach is a beach around Lake Charles, Louisiana. So when Mr. Perry declined, the defendant became abusive, using foul language toward Miss Perry. The defendant threatened to kill Miss Perry and her father. The defendant continued to curse Miss Perry and threatened to shoot both Perrys while he walked back to his trailer. He stated that if they left, 
he would burn all of Miss Perry's belongings. After conferring with his daughter and learning of her desire to retrieve a camera and a and dress the defendant had in his trailer, Mr. Perry walked up to the trailer. While talking to the defendant, Mr. Perry noticed the barrel of a gun held by the defendant. He told his daughter to get in the car, and the two Perrys drove away. All right, so then I told y'all what happened on Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990, what, uh, less than a month later, when... Scott Bork goes into the barn lounge and gate on and murdered in cold blood uh, Mr. Fontenot, right? And this is like at 10 o'clock, 9.45, 10 o'clock in the evening. So what I didn't tell you was what happened next. All right. So meanwhile, while Bork is at the barn murdering Fontenot, earlier in the day, he called Charlotte Perry's mama, Teresa Stout, S-T-A-U-T-E, okay? Let me just read it to you, and so just bear with me. On April 15th, 1990, it was a Easter Sunday, and Teresa Stout and her daughter, Charlotte Perry, her oldest son, Kenny Paul Perry, and her friend, Carol Romero, were at her residence in St. Martinville, Louisiana, in the early evening. Miss Perry had lived at home, talk about Charlotte, y'all, had lived at home since January 30th, 1990. While eating dinner about 7.30 p.m., the telephone rang. Because Charlotte Perry had been receiving threatening calls from the defendant, Miss Stout routinely answered the phone. When Miss Stout answered the call, the defendant told her, Miss Perry, tell Charlotte I love her and I love you. Miss Stout told the defendant she would do so and hung up the phone. Yeah, that's around 7 before he murders Fontenot. Later, as the family cleaned up the kitchen, the phone rang again. This time, the defendant told Miss Stout, Miss Perry, tell Charlotte I love her very much, and this is the last day of my life. The defendant had said similar things in the past to Miss Stout. Miss Stout told Charlotte, and Charlotte seemed distressed after being told of the call. All right, so Kenny Paul Perry left the house between 10 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. that evening. Miss Perry took a bath while her mother and Carol Romero went into a bedroom to watch television. At approximately 11 p.m., Miss Perry's 17-year-old, talking about Charlie, I was Miss Charlotte's brother, Miss Perry's 17-year-old brother, Michael, came home. Miss Stout talked to her two children in the kitchen, but soon returned to the bedroom where she fell into a light sleep. Soon thereafter, Michael Perry moved to answer a knock at the back door while Miss Perry, who was in a nightgown, began to walk down the hall. Talking about Charlotte, y'all. The defendant was at the door. Without saying a word to Michael, the defendant walked past him toward the hall where he saw Miss Perry. Michael saw the defendant had a shotgun with a pistol grip and heard him command, Charlotte, come here. Michael grabbed his keys, closed the door, and ran outside to get help. He drove his car to a nearby police station and told the officer on duty that there was a man with a gun in his house who would probably use it. After relaying his address, Michael jumped back in his car to go home. Meanwhile, Miss Stout, Charlotte's mommy, y'all. Meanwhile, Miss Stout was awakened from her light sleep by scrambling sounds in the hallway in front of her room. She opened her bedroom door and saw the defendant pulling her daughter down the hall. Miss Stout yelled at the defendant that he couldn't do this to her daughter. 
then grabbed on to Miss Perry and tried to keep the defendant from taking her. Because the two women were smaller, the defendant pulled both women down the hall and into the den. As the group passed the kitchen counter and entered the brighter light of the kitchen, Miss Stout was able to see a shotgun in the defendant's right hand and that his finger was on the trigger. Miss Stout looked at the defendant just as he raised the shotgun, placing it at Miss Stout's throat. Acting instinctively, Miss Stout grabbed the barrel of the shotgun and pushed it away toward her shoulder as the defendant pulled the trigger. Miss Stout heard her daughter scream while she was spun around by the blast, falling face down on the floor. Right before the defendant pulled Miss Perry out the door, Miss Stout heard her say, No, Scotty, no, no, I don't want to go. Miss Stout, still conscious, tried to rise from the floor to follow, but was unable to do so. When she turned her head and looked at her left hand, she saw her thumb had been shot off. She believed she was going to die. Awakened by the noise in the hall and the shotgun blast, Carol Romero walked down the hall to find Miss Stout face down and bleeding on the floor. He saw the defendant's back retreating out the back door, and although he could hear Miss Perry, he could not see her. Romero did not know if Miss Stout was alive until she spoke, telling him the defendant had shot her and had taken her daughter. Romero told Miss Stout not to get up because she was bleeding and called an ambulance. He ran into the kitchen and brought back a kitchen towel to wrap her hand. He also obtained a blanket because Miss Stout was shivering. Because Miss Stout also feared for her son Michael, whom she had not seen, Romero walked to the edge of the porch. From that vantage point, Romero saw the defendant trying to force Miss Perry toward his white Chevy Corsica four-door sedan. Miss Perry was fighting back to keep from going into the car, all the while begging the defendant to let her go. Romero re-entered the house and called Miss Perry's grandfather. He then heard a shot and went outside. Michael Perry, who had just returned from the police station and had parked his car directly across the street from his house, saw the defendant just as he was forcing Miss Perry out of the house. Michael saw his sister resisting the whole way. When they were about 10 feet from the defendant's car, the defendant could force Miss Perry to go no further. At that point, the defendant let Miss Perry go and shot her with his 9mm pistol. Michael exited his car and started towards his sister. When the defendant looked over at her, the brother, Michael retreated back to his car. As soon as Michael retreated, the defendant walked back to Miss Perry, raised the pistol, and shot her three more times as she lay on the ground. The defendant then ran to his car, put the two weapons in the back seat, and sped away. By the time Romero came outside again, the defendant was walking back to Miss Perry. Romero saw the defendant use both hands to point the pistol and shoot the victim as she lay on the ground. He saw the defendant speed away and noticed Michael Perry was standing across the street. Inside the house, Miss Stout heard a shot, then three more shots. At the time, she believed the defendant had killed her children, Charlotte and Michael. Romero ran back into the house to comfort her. 
Michael got into his car and followed the defendant to obtain the license number of the car the defendant was driving. He stopped at a gas station to write the number down, then went to his grandfather's house to tell him what happened. After that, Michael drove home and found police officers at the scene. Patrol officer Cheryl DeJiter of St. Martin Parish Sheriff's Office was the first officer on the scene. She checked Miss Perry and found no pulse. After entering the house, she found Miss Stout lying face down and called for an ambulance. When Michael came in, she questioned him. As a result of this information, she secured an arrest warrant for Scott Bork. Other sheriff's officers arrived. The crime scene was secured, and Miss Stout was transported by ambulance to the hospital. Spent shell casings were retrieved from the area around Miss Perry's body. Shotgun pellets were found in the residence on the floor and in the walls, along with shot sleeve and wadden from a shotgun. Yeah, all shot sleeve is just the shell casing, uh, shotgun casing, shell casing. The evidence, along with the clothing worn by the two women, and two bullets later recovered from Miss Perry's body, was turned over to the Acadiana Crime Lab for analysis. In the early morning, now, this is crazy, but listen to this. In the early morning hours of April 16th, 1990, Ian Robinson, a photojournalist from England, was awakened by knocking at the door of the friend's apartment in Metairie, Louisiana. Now, y'all, Metairie is a long-ass ways from St. Martinville, okay? Yeah, I mean, it's Interstate 10 all the way, but shit, it's, you know, a couple hours at least, probably closer to three. So, Bork believes he, he killed Stout and when he shot her with a shotgun and he goes outside, shoots Charlotte Perry once and then he stands above her and executes her, shoots her three more times. Now, under Louisiana law, when you enter a residence, it, um, whether you're going to steal anything or not, when you enter a residence illegally and you commit a felony once you're inside, that makes it an aggravated burglary. Doesn't matter if you don't take shit. And it makes it an aggravated burglary. So he committed an aggravated burglary plus the second-degree aggravated battery by shooting Miss Stout. And then he committed first-degree murder by executing Charlotte Perry. It's fucking cold-blooded. So then he gets in his car and he hauls ass, right? The uh, Drives the three hours or whatever it is to Metairie, goes and knocks on the door. This English writer, photojournalist, is is a is awake and, and here comes another shit show. Listen to this. So back to it. In the early morning hours, April 16th, 1990, Ian Robinson, a photojournalist from England, was awakened by knocking at the door of the friend's apartment in Metairie, Louisiana, where he was staying. Robinson opened the door and saw the defendant, who asked if his friend was at home. Robinson told the defendant the friend was not there, but invited the defendant inside. Mm-mm, big mistake. The defendant told Robinson, I've got to get away. I've got to escape. Then he stated he had just shot or killed three people. That's that's Fontenot at the barn, y'all. And he thinks he killed Stout and then, of course, Charlotte Perry. Robinson, who had been trained as a social worker, believed he could handle the situation and attempted to calm the agitated defendant. He asked the defendant his name and talked to him. When the defendant asked for a drink, Robinson handed him a bottle of vodka. Before drinking the vodka, Robinson observed the defendant's speech and movements were normal. Robinson noticed a pistol in the defendant's pants. 
and the defendant later placed the pistol on the coffee table. Robinson attempted to make some phone calls to get help, but was unsuccessful in reaching anyone on the first two calls. On the third call, Robinson reached the bartender of a nearby bar, Lefties, but was unable to talk to him because the defendant was in the room. At some point, the defendant's pager went off and he made a telephone call. Robinson heard the defendant tell the other person that he was sorry to look after his child and that he would not be taken alive. The defendant also told the other party he would not see him again. The defendant indicated he knew he would fry for this, his words. After this phone call, the defendant became nervous about staying at the apartment and wanted to leave. He indicated he wanted to take Robinson's car, but Robinson convinced him his car was not working. The defendant related his plans to first get to his brother in eastern New Orleans, then flee the country. Robinson was to ditch the defendant's car later. The defendant told Robinson he had about $9,000 in cash and showed him a large amount of money. The two men left the apartment. When Robinson entered the defendant's car, he noticed a shotgun leaning against the passenger seat. Wishing to place the weapon as far away from the defendant as possible, Robinson placed the shotgun on the back seat and buried it under a bag of clothing. The defendant placed the pistol on the floorboard of the car on the driver's side. When the men passed Lefty's bar, Robinson suggested stopping there for a drink, and the defendant agreed. Dumbass. Both, they, they go in, both men ordered a beer. When the bartender came over, but Robinson was unable to speak to him. At some point, Robinson was able to slip away to the bathroom and write a note alerting the bartender to the situation. After reading the note, the bartender made Robinson aware that several off-duty police officers were in the bar. Robinson was able to signal them, and two officers followed him into the bathroom. Once there, Robinson told the officers of the situation. One of the off-duty officers told another person to go across the street and call for assistance. Robinson left the bar with the intention of hiding the pistol. He was unable to do this, however, because the defendant followed him and asked what was he doing. Robinson made an excuse. The defendant then locked his car doors and the men returned to the bar. This motherfucker can't stay out of a bar, y'all. <laughs> The, shortly after, thereafter, Jefferson Parish Sheriff's officers entered the bar, stated there was a problem with a white car in the parking lot, and asked who was the owner. The defendant admitted the car was his and followed the officers outside. Robinson followed the officers outside and observed the defendant talking to the officers for about half an hour with no difficulty. Sergeant Norman Schultz of the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office responded to the call at the bar at 2.30 a.m. on April 16, 1990. He observed a 9mm pistol and a bank bag lying on the floorboard of the defendant's locked car through the window. When the defendant emerged from the bar, JPSO Officer Richard Reggio advised him of his rights. Questioning ceased after the defendant indicated he wanted a lawyer. A pat-down for weapons revealed several shotgun shells and over $8,000 in cash. 
while being detained, the defendant made two inculpatory statements. At one point during this detention, he stated, yeah, I did it, so what? Later, while being placed in a police vehicle to wait, the defendant volunteered, oh, by the way, I killed three people tonight. <laughs> the defendant was detained for approximately 45 minutes to an hour before the JPSO received confirmation from the St. Martin Parish Sheriff's Office that there was an arrest warrant for him. The defendant was arrested and transported to Jefferson Parish lockup. His vehicle was secured with tape and towed to Jefferson Parish impound lot. A search warrant was obtained for his car, 9mm pistol, a 12-gauge shotgun, a clothing bag, a small travel bag, empty 9mm shell casings, and a box of shotgun shells were recovered from the vehicle. The evidence was transferred to the Katyana Crime Lab. All right. Y'all, some more stuff happens, right? So I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it so I don't have to read everything. So St. Martin's Sheriff's Office comes and transport, and one of the guys that's doing the transport turns out to be related. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But they transfer him back uh, in ultimately put him on trial for first-degree murder. Now, this is doesn't have shit to do with Fontenot getting killed and gate on it uh, at the barn, right? They put him on for the murder of Charlotte Perry. And first-degree murder being that there were aggravating circumstances that occurred during the crime, one being the aggravated burglary I told you all about. Uh, when you enter a residence illegally and commit any kind of felony that makes an aggravated burglary, then he executed Charlotte Perry. And so let me tell you real quick, I'm, I want to read you about her autopsy, and then, then I'll tell you about the trial. Dr. Emil Laga, the coroner for St. Martin Parish, performed the autopsy in this Perry, testified the cause of death was multiple gunshot wounds, which caused massive bleeding and resulted in cardiac arrest. He found a cut on the victim's right wrist. He found one bullet traveled through her left hand and into her head, lodging in the left side of her neck. This was a defensive wound received when the victim raised her hand to protect herself. Although this wound was potentially fatal, it was not necessarily or immediately so. This bullet was recovered from the victim's body. Another bullet entered the victim's body in the right chest, passed through a lung, and exited through the victim's back. No bullet was recovered for this wound. Dr. Laga testified a person would not die immediately from this wound. Dr. Laga testified the fatal bullet entered the victim's left neck, traveled through the chest cavity into the abdominal cavity, tearing apart the heart and damaging the liver and lodging in the muscles of the victim's back. This bullet was recovered from the victim's body. Dr. Laga testified this bullet was fired from a downward angle into the body. All right, y'all. He executed her. The, the 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 first shot when they're outside, bam! And it, she raises her hand naturally, so it goes through and hits her, lands in the neck. She falls to the ground. It uh, the brother starts to approach. He turns on him, rightfully so. Probably the brother ran and he walks back up to her, and that's that's where the next three shots come from. I just read you about. So the long of the short, the all right. There's a whole lot that goes into this, and I'm, I'm gonna try to paraphrase things. They had this jury trial, all right, and he ultimately is found guilty, 
guilty and shit, all right? And, and they come back and they sentence him to death, period. And, and But he said, I mean, I mean, sent it to death row in Angola. On his appeal, he states one of a, like a thousand things. I'm not going to read you. And, and like last week, it was 89. I think there's like 90-something on this case. Uh, on his appeal, he raises the issue that during the trial, the prosecutor mentions his killing Fontenot at the barn, which I told you about last week, at the barn just before he went over and killed Charlotte and shot Miss Stout. Now, he hadn't been convicted for that case yet that I told you all about last week. He hadn't been to trial, and so it was a fuck-up on the part of the prosecution, and guess what? The Supreme Court overturns his conviction over the death penalty part of incentives sends it back to court for a new sentencing phase, all right? So the prosecutor fucked up when he mentioned it during, you know, you have your trial. He didn't mention Fontenot, right? They find him guilty, and the jury comes back, guilty first-degree murder. Then you have part two, which is the sentencing phase, and that's where they lay out all the shit. Uh, the prosecution lays out all the bad shit about homie, and the defense tries to say he's a saint, right? And then the jury retires and they vote again they come back absolutely the they found him guilty because of the aggravating circumstances which are the execution and the aggravated burglary but but during that part is when the prosecution talked about how he went to the barn they called it a mini trial y'all he told the whole story just like i told last week and so the supreme court overturns it they go back for a new sentencing phase at the pick jury a new jury and they go through the sentencing phase again. Naturally, the prosecution does not mention the barn and him killing Fontenot earlier in the night. They just go off the facts of the case. Guess what? Jury comes back. Guilty, bitch. You're going to death row, okay? So this is in like 1993 or 94, the retrial was. Y'all I like to look shit up, but I'm going to look it up anyway. Oh, let me, let me tell you this. This is how, this is how, this is what's crazy about the whole thing. You can thank Melissa K. Howe, who's a lifer, because she did a post a couple weeks ago about that she realized that she had met a serial killer before they did the killings or during they did the killings and asked me had I ever met anyone of that nature. And I was thinking about it. And then Karen Ortolano, the Dream Team member who's posted this case originally on the crew page, and I'm like, holy shit, I, I remember that I met this guy. Let me tell you how. That Sunday, I told you I put the guy out on the bridge because he was just gagging me, um, and I gave him my potatoes, the hitchhiker that I put out of the car. I left. I'm coming back to Lafayette. My roommate bartended at Bennigan's in Lafayette. Well, you know, roommates take care of roommates. I stopped by. We didn't have cell phones and shit back then, y'all. And Bennigan's was right around the corner from where we live. I saw his truck pull in. He just took me up on beer prices. So I guess I got there about about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Easter Sunday and, and go in and start having a beer. I, I drank Budweiser back then. And there were a couple of other people in the bar. And yes, it is Easter Sunday. I know this, right? A couple other people in the bar. And one was... Scott Bork, I didn't know at the time, and but he was there with another guy and a, and a female. But he gets into it, Bork, probably, 
an hour or two hours after there. I mean, they're loud. They're being loud and, and, and cutting up, and he's cursing or whatever. But there was another guy sitting at one of the tables in the bar, and he evidently Bork thought that this guy was eyeballing the female that was with them. And so Bork was like, what the fuck are you looking at my girl for? And da, 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 da. I mean, like, wanted to fight, aggressive. My roommate gets the manager. The manager comes in and basically talks him out of the fight and makes Bork and them leave. And, and I don't know what time that was, but uh, so I didn't know dick about it. I didn't, and, and we didn't have internet and all that back then. But a couple of days later, I was watching the news, the local news in Lafayette. It's like only one channel, right? And that's when they told about the shootings that, that happened that night at the barn and how he executed Charlotte. And Charlotte Perry, and then when they showed his picture, I'm like, fuck! And then they told me, I said, man, you got to look at this, look at this. And this dude left there and killed multiple people and, and tried to kill more, right? And they arrested his ass and yawned. So fucking small world, crazy world, and that's how I knew him. But now, when I started reading into this, after Kieran did it, wait until you hear the rest of this shit, okay? So I told y'all he went back for a second uh, penalty phase, and and that naturally they came back and sentenced him to death row. So that's in nineteen like ninety three or ninety four. That's how long it took to get the you know the Supreme Courts to say the first uh, sentencing phase was bad, and they had to redo it. And which the, and by the time they redid it and everything, they sent him back. I mean it's it's been like four years. Okay, so they sent him back. Now, what happens? He gets to death row and at some point decides, well, you know what? I don't really want to be here. And he waves or attempts to waive all his rights to appeals for the death penalty in the state of Louisiana. Well, and murder me now. I told you all about Gerald Bordelon, who's still the last person executed in the state of Louisiana in uh, 2012 or 2013, whenever it was. The he's, I, and I'd never known of anybody but him to do it. He waived all his rights to appeal. He wanted to be killed. He he wanted to stay in Louisiana killing because he didn't want to live on death row. But they were he was a chomo and a child, not only a child molester but a killer. And they gave him shit. Uh, Derek Toddley and the rest of them gave him shit every day on the row, and he wanted to die. But it took, what, three or four years for the state of Louisiana to find that he was sane enough to waive his rights to appeals and to be executed. And he's the last person put to death in the state of Louisiana. Now, can you imagine that? And I told y'all in Louisiana, it costs so much more to put a person to death because of the legal process. And wherever you're from, the you you're fucking paying for it, and I mean, if you're putting somebody to death, where it costs millions of dollars through the appeals process, where it only costs like twenty eight thousand dollars to house an inmate uh, a year for the rest of their life, okay? So it costs millions and millions of dollars more. Gerald Bordelon was successful in finally waiving all his appeals, and they executed him. Since then, there's a moratorium or whatever. John Bell Edwards doesn't want to say he's against our governor, doesn't want to say he's against the death penalty, but something to do with the drugs. The drug companies will no longer sell the legal cocktail because they found out the state of Louisiana was using it to kill people, which is 
even though it's a legal killing order by a court, it still is murder. Their their death certificate, like Gerald Borlon says, uh, it was it's a homicide, a homicide by the state of Louisiana. But Scott Bork, we back in the nineties, decides he doesn't want to live, and he represents himself. He appeals to the court and says, "Look, I want to waive all my shit." You can kill me. You can murder me now, too, right? The um, state of Louisiana spends the money, has him tested to, <laughs> to see if he's competent enough to waive his rights to the death penalty. And they would have sent him to the insane criminally, the hospital for a criminally insane, which is in Jackson, outside of Jackson, Louisiana, off of Highway 10. And you know, anybody that tries to plead insanity or whatever, they send you there and they do the tests, et cetera. And nine times out of 10, y'all, it's bullshit, right? But the tests come back on Scott Bork, and guess what? The state of Louisiana says, this motherfucker's too crazy to kill. Think about that. They came back and denied his right to waive his appeals to execution because they said he was not sane enough to make that decision. So he said he sat on death row and he followed it and he followed it. They kept going back and forth. Your taxpayer dollars are getting spent. Meanwhile, Miss Perry's deader and shit. Fontenot's deader and shit. Miss Stout, yeah, I think her, you know, her hands. She naturally, she's, she's scarred for life. She's still waiting on this asshole to be executed by the state of Louisiana. This is 2021. 2021. He killed her over, I mean, he killed her on April 15th, 1990. Think about that. And and shot shot her mama that same day. So if her mama is still alive, I don't know. I should have looked that up. If she is still alive, then she's been waiting all these years. Because now, what do you do? The 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 state comes back and says, "No, this motherfucker's too crazy to, to for you to kill him." What do you do? You can't commute a sentence. Fucker's still sitting on death row, y'all. Still sitting on death row. And one thing I did find because I was looking up trying to read some stuff about him is he actually. I mean, this has been years. This is like in the um, mid-2000s, like 2010 or 2011, something like that. He, Scott Bork, sues Warden Burl Kane in Angola Penitentiary and the Department of Corrections because they denied him a hip replacement. This motherfucker's been on death row for 30 years, and... He decides to waive his, his rights to appeal to get killed, and, and the state comes back and says, nope, sorry, you can't do that. Uh, you just got to live, I guess, forever on death row, right, living on death row. And, but at some point, he wants to have his hip replaced. His little hip, hip is bothering him, y'all. And they told him no. But they, they, and he sues the fucking state to have his hip replaced. I guess he's not worried about dying anymore. I mean, what the fuck? I don't know. I don't know. I can't understand it. But he's still there. And eating, sleeping, shitting, getting his free medical care on death row at Angola. Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. And it just blows my mind. So, And I talked to one of my friends 
who used to work the row, that's what they call it. And he said, you know, there's no trouble. Uh, it's not like uh, Gerald Borlaug getting picked on all the time or whatever. So the dude just does his time, but doesn't make any difference. He's a fucking murderer, man. I mean, what what if he, when, when I was in Bennigan's that day and he's arguing with that dude right down, I'm like 20 feet from me, I'm sure he had his pistol on him, the same nine millimeter that he carried into the bar in New Orleans when they arrested him. What kind of asshole? It, okay, so he shoots his ex, executes her, shoots her mom with a shotgun, then then executes her, and then drives to, to New Orleans in this Guy just happens to be staying in his buddy's apartment, and he thinks, you know, okay, uh, I'll feed him some vodka, and he tries to you know, secretly call the, the bartender in whatever. You heard the story. He goes into to the bar. At least he puts the pistol down on the floorboard this time, right? I mean, maybe he didn't have it in Bennigan's. I don't fucking know, but the well, he could have just as easily started shooting up Bennigan's. But I'll tell you what, you'd never catch Woody Overton sitting in a bar or a restaurant where I'm not sitting in the back corner with my back against the fucking wall for situations just like this. But anyway, he's still there. And this, I, I, y'all, he, he did the appeals process after the, where, where he wanted to be killed and all that. It goes on and on and on. And they said that the court erred in so many different ways, that, including the fact that he was too intoxicated uh, to be found uh, guilty of first degree because he had been drinking all day. Supposedly when they left, they got thrown out of Bennigan's. They went to Maurice, Louisiana, to the only bar I know of down there at the time and still down there. It's famous. It's, we would call it the MCB, the Maurice City Bar, and that's where we used to go on Thursday nights because they fed us free supper and the drinks were cheap. So they, well, they left there to go to MCB and then ultimately would leave the Maurice City Bar and go to the barn, and that's where... He murdered Fontenot over 80 bucks. Now, I just think the motherfucker had it on his mind. Remember, he called Charlotte's mama earlier in the day, like 6 or 7 o'clock. That would have been after probably after he got kicked out of Bennigan's. And guess what? He had to stop at a payphone to do this, y'all. There were no cell phones. So he had to stop somewhere and call and say, tell her I love her, blah, blah, blah. Then later on, at some point, he calls and says, tell her I love her, and this is going to be the last day of my life. So he had it on his mind. And But yet... That motherfucker's still alive. And so, Scott Bort, I wish you were on Murder by you, piece of shit. In Louisiana, I mean, whether you think the death penalty is right or wrong, it was an ordered uh, jury of his peers and still hadn't been executed. I guess he'll outlive us and live us all. So, But that's it. I'm not going to get into all the 90-something appeals process. I just wanted to tell that story. I think it's important. And... Thank y'all for listening, and I appreciate and love each and every one of you. Lifers, you, we are continuing to grow at a phenomenal rate, and it's because y'all keep telling people about us, keep sharing us and liking us. I mean, it's all organic. We don't have commercials out there, and our numbers are phenomenal, and I appreciate and love each and every one of you. Patron members, lifers, if you can't be a patron member, I get it. Or you don't want to be, or you can't afford to be, I get it. That's I love you, love you, love you, no matter what, okay? But your patron members, I'm going to give you your shout-outs. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. I appreciate you. If we owe you anything, email Cindy, cindy at realliferealcrime.com, and we'll make sure you, you get called up, okay? I, I don't think we owe anything, but every once in a while somebody doesn't get their package in the mail or whatever, and you don't tell us about it, well, we don't know about it. 
but we will get it fixed. So thank you so much, Patreon members. Look, y'all, Patreon, they get uh, vandalism above. They get early releases on these episodes, unedited and raw. I mean, they get to hear me doing the <laughs> all the mess-ups and everything else. And y'all think you get to hear it, but the uh, Patreon members really get to hear it. And when I have the internet capability, they get to watch me record live and stuff like that. And, you know, they get the T-shirts and the mugs and whatever. Uh, and, you know, the open container and above get Discord added to that. And then uh, it just goes up and up. So if you don't know about Patreon, go check it out. And people are saying every day how they they binged all the episodes and, and um, want more. Well, Patreon is the way to get it. I think I have eight or nine Patreon-only episodes locked up in the Patreon vault for vandalism above. Y'all, the, the, honestly, it's probably my best, some of my best stories, okay? This is shit that I don't want to release to the entire public. Um, but thank you, Patreon members. Love you. And Crew Bash, y'all, I, you know, it's going to sell out. So it's going to be the party of the year. Go to eventbrite.com, Real Life, Real Crime, second annual Crew Bash. Get your tickets. It's going to be worth every penny of it. And our social media, Instagram, at Real Life, Real Crime, or at Overton Woody and all our Facebook pages, y'all, our crew page, our Real Life Real Crime friends, fans, and crew has to be, I don't know how many, 35,000 or something by now, I don't even know, but I try to answer everybody on there, every single comment, and we have all our regular Facebook pages. We have a regular Real Life Real Crime Facebook page that is not, that the crew page is a private group. You have to answer questions. You have to get admitted in, and it's all true crime. We try to make it all true crime uh, so we don't get censored by Facebook. We have the Real Life Real Crime Lanyard page, which is a private group also. It has like four or 5,000 members, but you can go in there, post anything you want if you're a lifer, you, what you sell, what you make, uh, videos, I don't care, anything you want to, and it's pretty cool. Uh, but now, you know, the latest kick is pe people have been posting their recipes. Uh, and so, I, and, you know, I watch all that too, but just check it out. And, you know, if you have any likes or complaints or bitches or whatever, you can email me, woody at realliferealcrime.com. Uh, Miss Barbara Blunt's case, y'all, getting lots of tips lots of tips and and so please continue to send in your tips and we're doing a hashtag justice for barbara blunt just like we do the hashtag justice for courtney coco the livingston parish sheriff's office are working diligently on miss barbara's case but i we need your tips send them in no tip is too small or unimportant okay it's just Believe me, and I will always say, please send in your tips because every time I do a broadcast and I talk about Miss Barbara Blunt, somebody sends in a new tip or a new lead. And I, I don't care if you think it's unimportant or stupid or trivial, or if it, you, you, you might think I've heard it a thousand times. There was one sent in recently that I had never heard of, and so that it's something that has to be followed up on. And we are, Toby Tom Play and I will be starting Don't Call It a Cold Case, and where we're going to cover the uh, the big show production on Miss Barbara Blunt to get it more attention, and then we'll start looking at some of these other cold cases, and I get requests from around the country and around the world every single day. I got a letter in from England uh, the other day, and it was a lady talking about the tragedy that's 
part of her family, right? She wishes I could look at their cold case. Well, I wish I could too, but I can't. I can't do everybody's. Um, but we could try to bring some light to them and they'll, they'll call it a cold case and hopefully solve some using the lifers. So I guess that's about it, y'all. Crew Bash is, what, another week or two away, and I am recording this early, so it's probably already sold out. Get your tickets. If not, we're going to, I mean, either way, we're going to rock the hell out of it. And Lopa, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, we are doing the raffle. Get your, please go buy your tickets. $15 for one ticket, 10 tickets for $100, so $10 a piece. All benefits go to the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. That's for the guided fishing trip provided by Duvall's Cajun Charters, right? For the winner, a guest to come fish with me while Calvin, Captain Calvin Duvall guides, guides us for the day. At the end of the day, your fish are going to be clean and you're going to get a brand new 125-quart Yeti ice chest provided by local leaders of podcast and their host, Jim Chapman, to bring your fish home in. So go, go get your tickets. At, they're on all our social media, et cetera. And don't wait on that. The winner will be announced June the 19th on the stage at the Texas Club. And you do not have to be from Louisiana to go to lopa.org and sign up to be an organ donor. Save lives, y'all. If you are in Italy and you want to become an organ donor, go to lopa.org. It takes about two minutes to fill it out. And, y'all, if you want to, when you get done filling it out, there's uh, a spot, a section that says, where did you hear about us? Real Life, Real Crime is actually on there. So if you want to check that, that's fine. If you don't, that's cool, too. But that's it. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder by You. Peace. Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.